So I mentioned last week that Romans 12, uh, 1 through 11 was one of the most beautiful and the most kind of glorious and, and incredible and encouraging passages in all of, of Scripture, that uh, Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. And so uh, if, that, if, if that's true, that, that uh, verses 1 through 11 are one of the most beautiful and most encouraging passages in Scripture, which it is, then, um, then verses 12 through 21 are uh, arguably some of the toughest uh, verses in all of Scripture. One commentary, uh, one commentary says uh, Romans five twelve through twenty one is uh, the most difficult and the most controversial of passages to interpret in all of Pauline literature. So, so most of the New Testament, right, from from Romans through to Second uh, Timothy. So that's what we've that's what we've got in store today. Yeah, uh, wish I had better news for you. No, uh, so I'm kidding. So, uh, so I would argue that actually while this passage, 12 to 21, is difficult and controversial, it, like the passage that comes before it, is also incredibly encouraging and glorious because they are part of the same logical through line that Paul is making in Romans 5. So we're going to kind of see that together. My, my hope, my goal for this morning is not only to kind of walk through verses 12 to 21 and explain what they mean and why they, how they apply to us, but also to show you how they are beautiful and encouraging and glorious for us as believers. That's my hope. That's my goal. That's what we're, what we're aiming to accomplish this morning. The main idea that Paul's trying to get across in Romans 5, 12 to 21, uh, is that uh, we all die because we are in Adam. We are, we are identified with Adam, humanity's first parent, father. We are in corporate solidarity with Adam. And because of that, we experience guilt and death. And uh, that those who repent and believe the gospel uh, are also in corporate solidarity with Jesus Christ. And because of our having been identified with Jesus, we uh, receive uh, life and, and, and grace. So in Adam all die, and in Christ all live. That's kind of the, that's the, the thesis of what Paul is going to be arguing today. Now, uh, you, you might already have kind of put your finger on what is so difficult and what's so controversial about that idea that, that we all die, we are all guilty because of our uh, identification with this, like, m- this connection that we have to Adam who, who sinned. And it's because it, um, you know, pushes back uh, a little against our you know, individualism or our sense of fairness, right? Uh, Are you saying that I am punished because of what Adam did? Are you saying that God is going to punish me because of what someone else did? That's kind of the, that's why it's difficult and controversial. And that's the, the objection that immediately wells up. And, you know, full disclosure, that is exactly what Paul is saying. And that's why it's so, so difficult. And so, um, yeah, so we're going to, we're going to consider how and why Paul says that, that we are reckoned as guilty because of what Adam did. 
but then we're also going to consider why this text, uh, I would argue, is meant to be beautiful and, and encouraging to us as believers. So I'm going to read through it, and then we're going, to, uh, we're going to spend a few minutes considering it together. Starting in verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as, in, as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together and read it and hear from it. We pray that as we do so together, Lord, over these next few minutes, that it would be profitable and edifying and encouraging for us. We pray that you would speak to us and we pray that you would uh, sanctify us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 12. So, Jesse, I'm going to keep you on your toes this morning. We've got, we're going to have to do some, some uh, clicking through the slides in, in weird ways. You just got to track with me. Or just grab your bulletin, and you can kind of follow along there either way. Um, but, therefore, verse 12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for indeed sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, now if you're, so if you're a, a grammar, if you're kind of a grammar nerd like I am, then you should be like, you should feel a little uneasy after that first sentence. Because it, do, it doesn't, it's actually, uh, it's a sentence fragment, oddly enough. It's really long, like, common misconception, sentence fragments are all really short, and run-on sentences are all really long. Not true. Sentence fragments are sentences that don't 
like have a, a logical, like linguistic, grammatical struct completeness to them, and run-on sentences are ones that have multiple, you know, clauses. So uh, this, oddly enough, is a sentence fragment because uh, it, um, it, it's a dependent clause, right? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's kind of the, the s- initial setup dependent clause that is itself anticipating another clause, you know, just as, you know, this thing happened so too this other thing will happen, right? That's, it kind of is anticipated. John Stott uh, says, where is his quote here? Um, has about this verse. Uh, he says, Paul begins with a sentence that he actually never completes. His opening words are, therefore, just as sin entered, but the corresponding words that we expect namely, so also, they never come. John says, uh, the symmetry that, that a, a, a phrase like this would require would look like this. Just as one man, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death came to all, because all shared in his sin, so also, one man's righteousness, so also through one man, righteousness entered the world, and life through his righteousness, and so life came to all because all share in his righteousness. That's what you would expect after you read that first clause, but it's not there. And so, you know, Paul, like, if, I mean, if you turn this into a 10th grade English teacher, this might, he might get points off for, like, the, the way that this sentence is, is kind of worded and structured, right? But not to worry because... Um, because even though Paul, in fact, uh, yeah, even though Paul, even though this sentence uh, is not grammatically, like doesn't see its grammatical conclusion before the period, which technically it should, um, the, the logic that Paul is communicating, that he does conclude this statement, he just does it later, down in verses 18 through 19. So to actually see this sentence as it was, the, it's almost like, um, let's, let's hop back one more second, um, so everything from verse 13 down to the end of verse 17, you can almost imagine it as a parenthetical thought. The sentence itself is verse 12 that goes immediately into verses 18 and 19. So it would read something like this. So if we start on verse 12 and then we'll skip to 18 in the, in the middle, Jesse. Uh, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Jump down to verse 18. Let's... let's uh, not this one, but the, yeah, to verse 18, so the next one. So, uh, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Right, so so verses 12 and 18 through 19 kind of come together to form one logical point, and then verses 13 through 17 kind of are, are additional points. And so the outline for this text, I would argue, should look something like this, which is what we had just a second ago. Let's see that. So here's kind of the four points that I want to walk through with this text. Right, verses 12 and 18 and 19 together is a comparison of 
Adam with Jesus. The person of Adam, what Adam did and accomplished, compared with Jesus. And the, the main thing that they share in common, the thing that they have in common, is the idea of imputation. What they did was imputed to the people who are in them, with them, identified with them, and in corporate solidarity with them. That's kind of the uh, first big point. The second one, verses 13 through 14, is Paul, um, he's kind of uh, establishing that, that that is in fact true, right? He's kind of proving the premise that he was just assuming in verse 12, establishing that death was in fact brought into the world through Adam. Verses 15 through 17 is a, now this is tricky, right? Because 12, 18, and 19 is a comparison of Adam and Jesus, what they, what they share in common. But verses 15 through 17 is a contrast of Adam with Jesus. It's what they don't share in common, what's different about them. So he's going to say, here's what's similar, and here's what's different. And then finally, verses 20 through 21, that the law brings death and grace brings life. So that's uh, kind of the, the outline of the, of the text that I want us to kind of walk through uh, for the rest of the the morning. Now, uh, before we do, there's two preliminary points that I want to point out uh, about this text that are just worth mentioning in passing on the front end. If you want to dive into them deeper, come see me after class and we'll talk through it. Now we can jump back up to verse 12, Jesse. Uh, so the first point is, I think, I, I think it's pretty unavoidable from reading Romans 5, 12 to 21, it seems very clear that Adam was a real person. A real historical person who lived in a real historical garden, who committed a sin against God, invited death into the world. The fall is a thing that happened in time and space in a real literal place called the Garden of Eden to a real literal person named Adam. I think that Romans 5 pretty much nails that down such that if you don't believe it, I would suggest to you, I would submit to you that you have moved outside of the bounds of uh, those people who have a high view of Scripture and who sit under the authority of Scripture. So I, there are a lot of different ways that people uh, interpret Genesis 1, 2, and, and 3. There's a lot of, you know, different positions on how old the earth is, and I think that faithful Christians can, uh, you know, have different positions on those things, but I think that to be a faithful, godly Christian with a high view of Scripture, you have to believe that Adam was a real person, that he was a real human being, that God made him specially in his image, that he really did disobey God in time and space history in the Garden of Eden. I think that those things... Uh, if you want to have a high view of Scripture and you want to submit to the authority of Scripture, I would submit to you that those are non-negotiables. So, age of the earth and other things, we can have another conversation on, but those are non-negotiable. Uh, so that's, that's preliminary point number one. Adam was a real person. Sin and fall was a real thing that, that happened. Preliminary point number two um, is interesting because just as sin came into the world through one... Like, if you read Genesis 3... Don't shoot the messenger, but it wasn't Adam. It, Eve was the one who sinned first. We're going to get technical. So, why, do, why does when God comes and addresses humanity after the fall in Genesis 3, why does he look at Adam? Why does he point to Adam? And why does uh, Paul point to Adam here as the, the singular, the one man through whom 
sin and guilt and death were invited into the world, I think it's because God created humanity, male and female, both equally in God's image, but distinct from one another, different from one another, with unique, specific, particular responsibilities. And God gave Adam, God gave man, uh, unique, specific responsibilities to lead and protect, such that when, when Eve sins and eats the fruit, God looks first to Adam, the leader, the provider, the protector, and, and, and points to Adam. Paul points back to Adam and not Eve because Adam's job was to lead and protect. And so there are people, it's pretty prevalent today um, in secular society, there are people that, that don't recognize any distinction at all between men and women. There are, Christ, there are people who identify as Christians that try to you know, erase the distinction between men and women. Or if you try to say that there is nothing in the world that uh, God calls men to do that women, that God does not call women to do. Or if you say that there's nothing in the world that God calls women to do that he does not call men to do, which, you know, side note, my wife gave birth to two children in the last several years, so that's... It's a tough, tough sell anyway. But if you, if you, if you think that there's nothing that men, that men are called to do that women can't or vice versa, then like the historical Adam thing, I would, I would contend that you have moved outside of, uh, outside of the area where we are, where we have a high view of Scripture and where we submit to the authority of Scripture. I think Scripture is pretty clear that men and women are different. There, there are distinctions and differences between men and women, and that there are some things that God has called men to do, some things that God has called women to do. That is, I think, clear and unavoidable from Romans 5. So those are my two preliminary points. Adam was a literal person, literal garden, literal time, literal fall in time and space. Men and women are different. God gave men particular responsibility to lead and protect. Now, with all of that said, we'll start the sermon. So timing, time starts now. Everything before. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Uh, so those are two preliminary points. So let's, let's start. Let's dive in. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. Um, let's see here. I think we might have. Oh, there we go. Just sin came into death through sin. You jump to 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men and one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul is saying, Adam sinned in the garden. When he did, he invited sin and guilt and death into the world. Right? When Adam sinned, he was removed from the presence of God. He would later die a physical death. But it's not just that Adam when he sinned, that Adam would go on to die a physical death. It's that all of Adam's descendants, all of the people who are connected with Adam, would also die a physical death. We all die because of our own sin against God, but we also all die because of Adam's sin against God and because we are connected with him. One theologian says, the problem with the human race is not most deeply that everybody does various kinds of sins. 
Rather, behind all of our depravity, behind all of our guilt, behind all of our personal sinning, there is a mysterious connection or union with Adam, our father, who sinned, and then we being in him in some mysterious way, we also sin, and we also die, and we also are condemned. So Adam's sin is imputed to his descendants. They are considered guilty of sin before God by virtue of their connection with Adam. There are you know, people, philosophers, thinkers who, who submit that we're born into this world neutral, clean slate, equal capacity for good or evil. There are Christians who, who maintain that, and they even say that, you know... Um, you know, they'll, they'll kind of come up with an arbitrary age of accountability, whether it's 6 or 10 or 12. And until you hit that age, then if you, there, you, if you can't sin until you hit that age because you, can't, you don't have the capacity to do something for which you are accountable. And so sin and death, the, these people would, would believe, is that it doesn't happen until after you cross that threshold of accountability and then you commit your first sin after that moment in time. Romans 5 teaches against that. It teaches that we are not born into the world morally neutral and innocent. We are born already guilty, already having inherited a sinful nature. Right? I mean, it's not that we don't have free will. It's not that we're not able to do what we want to do. It's that we have free will to act within the confines of the nature that we have. So... Like a fish is free to swim wherever it wants in the water. It's not free to fly in the air because that's not its nature. It's, right? Human beings are free to act as they see fit within the confines of their nature, which, as it happens, is, is tainted, it's darkened by sin. This is a doctrine called total depravity, right? That we have been comprehensively affected, uh, intellect, will, emotions, mind, body, you know, at, right? We've been affected by sin and we are... That's our nature. That's our our bent, right? We just heard from Psalm 51 two weeks ago. Uh, David said, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. That's, that's, David, you know, believes and is kind of working on the same idea that we inherit, we, we, we uh, inherit guilt from Adam, a sinful nature from Adam before we are even born, which you know, is why the virgin birth is such an important doctrine that we can't uh, get get away from. Again, that's why this passage is difficult, right? It's difficult to hear. Uh, you as a human being are guilty from the moment you're born because of what someone else... Like, that doesn't fly at... You know, if you get a... Like, you don't get a speeding ticket in the mail that says your neighbor was speeding, so you owe money for, you know, like, you, you commit a crime you pay the punishment for your crime. It wouldn't like, so if if they can't do it at the local county courthouse, impute someone else's guilt to you, then how can God impute someone else's guilt to you? That's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. The natural objection that someone might have to this text, I have that to this text. I read it and I have that same question, that same objection. And so I can think of two responses that Paul would have to that objection. Paul, that's not fair. 
that Adam's sin and guilt is imputed to me and that I am reckoned as guilty by virtue of my connection with Adam. So one response that Paul would give, he does explicitly give a couple chapters later, but one that I think he would give is to say that God is not subject to fallen notions of fairness. It might be true that how God imputed Adam's sin to you such that you inherit guilt from Adam and inherit a sinful nature with Adam, it might be true that that does not comport with what you think is fair. That might be true, but the reality is God did it. And what God does, by definition, is right and just and fair. We don't get to tell God whether what He did is right and just, you know, according to what we think, right? God is the one who tells us whether what we do is right and just according to what He says and according to who He is. Our minds, our nature is fallen and not capable of perfect righteousness and justice, so we are not in a position to judge God and say that God has done something that is not fair or or just. That's one response I think Paul would give. God is not subject to fallen notions of fairness. Another response that I think Paul might give to the objection that that's not fair, that I uh, inherit guilt from Adam, he would say, okay, fine. It may be true that God imputing Adam's sin to you such that you inherit guilt from Adam, that it may be true that that does not seem fair. It may be true that that presents a problem for you, namely uh, that you will receive judgment and wrath from Adam's sin that may present a problem for you, but it's not a problem that is without a solution. And the solution that God gives for the, the judgment and wrath that you are now going to receive by virtue of having Adam's sin imputed to you, the solution actually uses the same mechanism that the problem used, which is that of imputation, right? So, so if, if Adam's sin is imputed to you and you are reckoned as guilty before God, deserving of his judgment, well, there's a solution that also involves imputation, which is just as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. The solution is stop complaining about whether it was fair for God to impute Adam's guilt to you. Stop pontificating about hypothetically what you would have done if you were there in the garden instead of Adam. Stop doing any of that and instead trust in Jesus, right? Trust in the second Adam and you can have his righteousness imputed to you in the same way that Adam's sin was imputed to you. You can be treated as righteous by virtue of your corporate solidarity with Jesus in the exact same way that you were previously treated as guilty by virtue of your corporate solidarity with Adam. Right? Leave team Adam number one. It's a sinking ship. Cross the picket line. Join team Adam number two. Life and grace and righteousness by virtue of what Christ has done for you. Right? So one... God is not subject to fallen notions of fairness, but to receive the justification that Jesus is offering freely to you instead of, instead of being uh, held down by the condemnation and death that Adam earned for you. 
So Adam sins and brings death, but in a similar way, Jesus is righteous and brings life. That's point one, from verses 12 and then 18 and 19. Point two, from verses 13 to 14, is an answer to another objection, right? You could hear that, that first point, Adam sins, brings death, Jesus is righteous and brings life, and say, well, Paul, I don't concede your premise. I don't think that, I don't agree with you that Adam actually, I don't agree with you that people die because of their connection with Adam. I happen to think that people die because of their own individual culpability, their own sins. And so if you haven't proven, you haven't proven that death was brought into the world through one man, Adam, so I don't have to listen to anything else that you say thus far. And Paul is going to kind of work out that objection and, and answer it. He says, if you don't think that, at, that sin and death came into the world through Adam, and that we die because of our connection with Adam, I'll prove it to you. Verse 13, For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. So the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And so Paul is saying, everyone after Adam, Cain and Abel, everyone from there all the way to Moses, they lived in a world, as it were, without the explicit law of God having been given to them, right? But they, they were still, sin reigned in the world at that time. Sin was in the world before the law was given. So, so everyone from Cain to Moses were sinners. That much is obvious. You can read, we went through Genesis, right? There's a lot of sin and a lot of just folly and a lot of, the, you know, in, in the book of Genesis, it's filled with sin and sinners. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So, everyone from Genesis, everyone in Genesis are sinners, but again, technically, they weren't breaking any specific, explicit command that God had given to them, right? God gave Adam a specific command, do not eat from the tree, and he did. So Adam's sin is specific and explicit and, and concrete. It's right there. And God gave laws to Moses, the Ten Commandments and all of the rest of the laws. So ever and after Moses is held accountable by virtue of the explicit commands that were given to Moses at Sinai, Adam is held accountable by his explicit command that he got in the garden. But what about everyone from Adam to Moses? And Paul's saying, hello, they died. Right? The, the death reigned from Adam to Moses. Everyone between Adam and Moses died even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. The transgression of Adam was a, a specific breaking of an explicit command that was given to him. So everyone between Adam and Moses, they didn't break, they didn't have a transgression like that, because they didn't, same thing with uh, babies or infants, right? They don't break a specific command like Adam did, and yet they die. So Paul's saying, if we die only because of what we do, breaking a specific command of God, then why do infants die? And why did anyone die between Adam and Moses? There's no answer. The only reason that an unborn child or that a child in infancy or that a person between Adam and Moses would have died, would die, is because they are human beings living in a world. They, they've inherited guilt from Adam. They're living as humans in a world that's fallen where death has now spread to all men. So Paul says... It is inarguable that death, that human beings die because of their connection to Adam. Because human beings who don't explicitly break an explicit command still die. 
So point one is a, a comparison between Adam and Jesus. They both uh, do something that is then imputed to the people that are in them. Point two is proof that death was in fact brought into the world through Adam by looking at people between Adam and Moses. And point three, which is interesting because it's kind of the flip side of point one, is that, I mean, point one was just as sin came into the world, so in a similar way, righteousness came into, right? Adam and, and, and Jesus's there's similarity. It's the same. Just like one, so like the other. But look at verse 15. It's the opposite. Kind of, it, the free gift is not like the trespass. I thought you just said it was like the trespass. It's not. So Paul's saying there's similarities between Adam and Jesus, but there's also dissimilarities between Adam and Jesus. And the, the main dissimilarity is not that imputation took place. That's the common thread. That's what's similar. Imputation happened. The dissimilarity is what was imputed, right? They're the same because imputation is part of their, what they do. But they're different in that Adam, the, what is imputed through Adam is death, right? Many died through one man's trespass, but what's imputed through Jesus is grace and righteousness and life. Uh, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace uh, by that one man abounded to many. Verse 16, uh, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. What Jesus did is not like what Adam did. Adam's sin brings condemnation, right? Jesus' righteousness brings justification. Verse 17, for if, one ma- for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Jesus. So, so uh, verses 15 through 17 are effectively saying, even though there are similarities between Adam and Jesus, that they both impute what they did to their people, what's different is that what Jesus did was better. What Jesus did was superior. What Jesus did overcame what Adam did. It was stronger. It was, it was better. The redemptive salvation purchasing work of Christ is superior to and better than the sinful death-causing work of Adam. Adam and Jesus are similar, but Jesus is better. They are both federal heads, but Jesus is superior, and what he did was superior. So point one, Adam, whose work is imputed to his people, is similar to Jesus, whose work was imputed to his people. Point two, death did in fact come into the world through Adam as evidenced by the fact that people between Adam and Moses died. And point three, Adam, whose sin brought death, is different than Jesus, whose righteousness brought life. Jesus is superior to Adam. And then, and then finally, point four, verses 20 to 21. The law brings death but grace brings life. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there was sin and guilt and death before the law was given, right? People were dying between Adam and Moses, but when the law was given, now people had more accountability, right? They had specific, explicit commands that when they broke them, there was more guilt. There was more of a trespass. The trespass was, was increased. 
But when that happened, when the trespass increased, when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Meaning that, that, you know, when people were more accountable and more guilty and more deserving of God's punishment, then when God saves those people, he is shown to be even more gracious and more merciful than he was. Right? If God saves a people who are marginally sinful, then that shows that God himself is marginally gracious. But if God, sh- if God saves and forgives a person who is incredibly, excessively sinful, then that shows that God is incredibly, excessively, excessively kind and merciful and gracious. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So in Adam, because of Adam's sin, death reigns, people die, and they deserve and experience the judgment of God. In Christ, because of Christ's righteousness, grace reigns, life reigns, eternal life reigns. And this is what I want to argue is why this text is not simply the most difficult, controversial passage in all of Pauline literature, although I would agree that it is. I think in addition to that, this text is also one of the most beautiful and glorious and encouraging passages in all of Pauline literature, in all of the Bible. And here's, here's I think that the reason why is because of the through line of Romans 5. Right? What, what, do we, what do we read and hear about and learn last week in Romans 5, 1 through 11, right? Kind of the, the big, kind of the, the banner verse, right, that like you kind of sticks in your head and that you remember Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was the big theme last week in 5, 1 through 11. But what argument did Paul make as a result of that theological reality. The theological reality that Jesus died for you while you were a sinner. How, what did Paul go on to argue as a result of that in verses 9 and following? Right In verses 9 he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, how much more will we now be saved by God? Verse 10, If God reconciled us to himself while we were his enemies, how much more... Will God save us and keep us now that we are his children? Right? If this, then this. Right? So Paul is saying the theological reality that Jesus died for us while we were sinners is true. But that's not all I want to say. I want to, now that I've established that, I want to use it to argue for something that should give you comfort in your soul. And that is that God will never let you go. God will never let you go. He, he wouldn't, why would God let you go now that you're his child? If he loved you enough that he was going to save you when you were his enemy, then he obviously loves you enough to keep you now that you are his child. So the whole, the, the theological premise that he was saying in, in verse 8 that God, that Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner is encouraging on its face, but it's even more encouraging because of what's Paul, what Paul is arguing from it, which is that God will never, ever let you go. 
He is going to keep you forever. Jesus has saved you, and he will, you can persevere through suffering knowing that Jesus will never, ever let you go. He will not drop you. He has never dropped anyone, and he will never drop you. That is what Paul is trying to argue for in Romans 5. Not just in 1 through 11, which is what we saw last week, but also this right here. 12 through 21 is also supplementary uh, evidence for, for the, the premise, for the, the, the argument that Paul is making that God will never, ever let you go. And here's why Paul starts talking about Adam and imputation as a means of encouraging believers that God will never let them go. He's basically saying, if you doubt whether or not God will keep you, if, you are, if your faith is wavering, if you are unsure about how secure you are in the hand of God, how much assurance you actually have because of God and his having saved you. If, if you do you want to know how much assurance you actually have and how secure your eternity actually is? Paul says, if you want to know how sure you are, if you're asking me how sure is your salvation, I'll answer your question with a question of my own, which is, how sure are you that you are going to die? How sure are you that any mortal human being is going to die? Because the reality is, if you trust in Jesus, if you are identified with Jesus, the prospect of you spending eternity in heaven with Jesus is as inevitable, if not more so, then physical death is for every single human being, every single descendant of Adam. They're that locked in, right? The old, like a, a human being somehow escaping death and living forever without ever dying is more likely, more plausible than God dropping and losing a child, right? In Adam, everyone dies. No one doesn't die. Every human... I'm, I'm not a gambling person. I... Here's a bet that I would take, and I would cash... I mean, I would... Kids' college, retirement. I would, I would take every loan I could get from any bank to give me and shove all the chips into the middle. If someone came to me and said, Ben, I bet you that I'm never going to die. Not today, not in a year, not, if, not in a million years. Ben, if I ever die ever, then I get all of your money. But if I somehow manage to live forever and, and escape, evade death for all of eternity, wait, whatever, yeah, if, you, if I die, you get all, um, whatever. It's a bet. I would take that bet. I would, I would bet every cent that I have because I am 100% confident that that person is going to die. I'm 100% confident that I'm going to die just as death came into the world and spread to all. Everyone dies. No one does not die. Ben Franklin, right? The, oh man. Um, what, what is it? Uh, 
in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Everyone is going to die. No one is going to escape death. Every single person, because they are a human being connected with Adam, is going to die. And every single Christian who is trusted in Jesus and who is vitally connected to him, Jesus is going to save them and keep them. He will never let you go. If you have any doubts as to whether Jesus can and will keep you for eternity, then just consider how inevitable it is that a a mortal human being is going to die. That is how inevitable it is that Jesus is going to save you and keep you if you trust in him. Right? If you are in Adam, if you are a physical descendant of Adam, and we all are, then you are going to die. But if you are in Christ, if you are a spiritual descendant of Christ and part of his body, then God is 100%, without a doubt, God is going to save you and keep you. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It is an indelibly sure law of the universe. That's why this text is beautiful. Right? This text is tricky and difficult, and it hurts because it pushes back on our individualism and our fallen notion of justice. But this text is beautiful and glorious because you walk away from this text when understood rightly, knowing, knowing, no matter what happens, no matter how much I suffer, no matter what happens, God has died for me, Jesus has died for me, and God will save me. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the present, nor things in the future, nor height, nor depth, nor tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor danger, nothing at all in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is proving here in Romans 5, and that is why this text is not just difficult, but it is glorious and encouraging. Jesus has died for us to save us, and he will keep us forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for that glorious reality that Jesus has died for us, that Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us, that, that life and salvation are ours forever, irrevocably. We thank you for the assurance of salvation that we have as the people of God, as people who trust in Jesus. We thank you that we will spend eternity in your presence because of the sufficiency of the work of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.